Welcome to the Kingdom Roots podcast with Scott McKnight, the conversation designed to look at how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. My name is Laura Taro, and today on the podcast, we are talking with Scott McKnight and his daughter, Laura Berenger, who is also the co-author of their recent book, A Church Called Tove. And today, we are continuing our conversation about spiritual abuse in the church. This is our second session on this topic, and we'll be answering questions that we received on both Facebook and Twitter. And just as a note to our listeners, um, the recent report just came out this last weekend about Ravi Zacharias. So you may be hearing this a couple weeks from now. It, it might be old news, but it is very fresh in our minds, and it's probably going to come up in the conversation today. So just to let you know kind of the timing, the, the separation between the taping and the broadcast, so you know that that is why we're going to spend some time talking about it. But I thought we'd lead off this morning or today with some questions about how to respond to disagreement in the church. So Scott, this is a question from Twitter about the cultural push for unity, which can sometimes be confused with uniformity or sameness. And in churches, when there's a push for unity, people have been and will be subjected to abusive tactics to get them to be unified. Um, what do you recommend people do to encourage diverse points of view? And I think this is particularly in the context of leadership. When you have leaders who are disagreeing and there's a push for a united front, how do you do that well? Um, so yeah. um, so the, the idea is that uh, there's disagreement among the leaders about something and not just with lay that's, people. Yeah, that's what it seems to be. Yeah, I, I think this is this is a difficult situation for in many contexts in churches. Um, the first thing I would advise is that they take a really solid look at their doctrinal statement. And make sure that the variant viewpoints are consistent with the doctrinal statement. Let's let's take an example. Let's just say all of a sudden we have a, a church that has a doctrinal statement that's pretty generic. And one of the leaders decides he or she believes in women's ordination. And the pastors, or let's say one of the senior pastor the bloke with all the power mm -hmm. uh, is a complementarian. All right. At this point, it is consistent uh, with the doctrinal statement for either viewpoint. In my opinion, that should be the basis for tolerance or intolerance. If that per if if they have a statement that affirms let's just say one view of the atonement and you you say no i don't i think that's totally wrong well then you've you've put yourself in jeopardy with the doctrinal statement that you can no longer sign with integrity hmm. then you have to have doctrinal statements that are either affirmed or can be affirmed with uh let's say some dissidence or some disagreement some hesitations 
If you don't have that, uh, you're going to have to figure that one out too. My, in my opinion, uh, most of these issues are socio-cultural, theological issues, and not simply theological issues. In other words, if it is women's ordination, or if it's post-trib rapture, or if it's uh, a slightly lower than inerrancy view of scripture, and it's not in the doctrinal statement, uh, you will find people who say, oh, we all believe that. We've all assumed it all along. Why Why are you disagreeing? Well, I think at this point, the, the people need to get together and almost have a policy of how we discuss theological disagreements. All right, now that's one point. My second point is this, and this is, I won't go on as long about this, is that um, churches need to model theological disagreements in the old line that in essentials, we can have unity. We won't have uniformity. In non-essentials, we will have diversity. And in all things, we will have charity. All right, this is a wonderful statement that is great until you find an issue that one person thinks is essential and another person thinks is a non-essential. And that mm -hmm. happens all the time. I really believe that churches need to model theological diversity. If they don't, it's going to be nothing but conformity. And eventually you're going to lose people for the uh, least important of things. Dad, could you speak to a moment for churches who believe that the elder board, for example, should present a united front or that everybody votes the same way or they have a unanimous decision before making an announcement or decision or judgment? Oh, boy, this is an issue. I don't know if you've heard of this one, Laura Terrell. Have you? Uh-huh. About where the elder board has to be unanimous all the time? Yes. Yeah. I mean, this comes from the business world. It's a, yeah. it's a show of power. It's dangerous because it doesn't respect truth and reality. It's a mask. It's not telling the truth. So you just simply say we had a vote of seven elders Four of them are for this and three are against it. But we want everybody to think that all seven agree when they don't. So therefore, we're going to tell you that it's all seven. That is lying. And it's not, it's not healthy. In fact, I think saying four to three is a way of saying our church doesn't totally agree on this. We might need to wait or we might need not, we might not need to take a statement. Make a statement mm. or a stand right now, but I think that the the I think it's the business it's some business model of consensus or it's not consensus but uh, we will work until we all agree, which means we're going to silence the the two or three that that differed. Uh, I think that this is um, it is severely bad practice in a church. Churches mm. knowing that not everybody agrees is a good thing. Not a bad thing. That's and how wonderful, how wonderful that would be just to hear the truth that our elders don't all agree on this now. So we're going to withhold making a judgment or a decision. I don't think I've ever heard that. Yeah. 
Well, I know I'm, I'm pretty sure that Mars Hill and Grand Rapids, because of disagreement among some leadership team on same-sex marriage, said because we disagree, we will not take this into consideration for when we have elders appointed. Mm -hmm. uh, that was very disruptive to some people uh, because mm -hmm. they thought everybody should take, I mean, it was a revelation of what was going on there. Um, I, th I think it was an admirable act of honesty, even if I disagreed with it. It was an admirable act of honesty to say, we don't all agree on this. Yeah. Well, this the next question is related you know, to this. Really Poor Tara, sorry. It really yeah, gets go ahead. nasty is when it involves a lot of money. You know, let's mm -hmm. say we decide to build, let's say, a new theater in the church. And you find out that there were there were 15 elders and six were against it. Uh, then all of a sudden people say, I don't want my money going for that because I agree with those elders who didn't. So, all right. Sorry. Okay. Uh, this is a question from Twitter, and they say, I've experienced unhealthy church culture when disagreement or pushback, no matter how thoughtfully done, is labeled as divisive. Mm -hmm. To disagree with leadership isn't perceived as healthy pushback, but rather unhealthy divisiveness, which is very dangerous. How can leaders help change this type of situation? Laura Berenger, you got a comment? Well, I just remember the advice you gave to me, Dad, because I was told that I was being divisive when I was speaking about Willow Creek. And not that you were, I'm not comparing myself to the Bible in any means, but you reminded me that the truth divides. And it is divisive. And I think it would be helpful if leaders were able to share that wisdom with their congregations that um, even Jesus, in my opinion, even Jesus was divisive, I guess, because he divided the truth. Well, yeah, and he also says this, uh, that the message, the kingdom message is going to divide families. Okay, here's the thing I would say, Laura, that the language of divisive, let's say it's accusation is a bludgeon. It's mm. a weapon. It's a weapon to silence people. You know, some people are divisive. You know, they get in the middle, you know, um, for instance, people who have borderline disorder are splitters, they're called. They'll get involved, and the next thing you know is they've lined you with them against someone else, and now we got two against one, and you're going, what in the world happened here? All right, th that's a divisive person. And I've worked with, with borderline people, right? But um, some people are divisive. They just sort of like to get in a fight and get people on their side. And the next thing you know, uh, what you thought was a nice unity uh, has turned into uh, an awful situation. All right. If, if, if it is a person who is actually a divisive person, then they need to uh, have a therapist and they need to work through why they tend to create divisions in groups. Mm -hmm. All right. Theological differences 
create divisions, but that's not divisive. All right, it is, if it's a legitimate theological difference, you know, mid-trib versus post-trib on the rapture, amillennial versus premillennial on millennialism, um, whether uh, kingdom involves the church or doesn't involve the church, whether Christians should be involved in political affairs or they should be more Anabaptists and stay out of them. Um, these are legitimate Christian differences, but they, they tend to be a bit divisive, you know, because you've got some people in your church who are thoroughgoing Republican Kuyperians, and you've got some others who are thoroughgoing Social Democrats or Democrat Niburians, and they have to learn to get along. I think those people should learn to get along. Uh, unless they're distorting the entire church in that direction. You know, sometimes politics takes over in a church. So I would say that the first thing I would say is the language of divisiveness is a weapon that should almost never be used unless it is just a divisive person. Okay, mm -hmm. so that's the first thing. The second thing is churches need to grow up Leaders especially need to grow up and know that they're not the only ones who have access to the Bible and can teach. This is a day of social media and, and the Internet. People can find out intelligent answers and sometimes foolish answers to everything. You know, if you want to know about the eternal subordination of the sun, Google it. You'll find some intelligent comments and you'll find some foolish comments. And some people don't know the difference, and that's a problem. But we uh, we need to recognize that there's going to be disagreements in the church, and we need to tolerate those differences unless those persons insist that their viewpoint is the only legitimate one. Then they are the divisive one. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've seen this in situations where... Um, an individual will sort of have a prophetic bent to them where they are frequently raising issues that they see. And it's because they tend to see further down the line. So they're seeing decisions that are being made now and they're sort of able to predict the outcomes of decisions um, in ways that maybe other people aren't as tuned into. And so they get labeled as a troublemaker constantly raising things that they see and maybe some of their predictions come true maybe some of them will never come true but the fact that they're raising things becomes a problem because it's seen as a threat to authority where i i tend to think we need those voices we need um dissenters who raise issues that maybe we're not inclined to see um, we don't necessarily have to always follow on what they raise but I think silencing them can be very dangerous. Hmm. Yeah, I think the key, the key for me is, is the divisive label being used as a weapon to silence people? And if so, that's a that's the red flag. Yeah. And but I, I agree that um, we need to allow voices of dissent. And disagreements within a family are very common 
and they're okay. You know, we can get together at Thanksgiving with differences of opinion on all kinds of things and transcend those differences because we're family. Churches should be able to do the same. But uh, unfortunately, there are some people who who are basically intolerant. You know, they, they have a minority viewpoint. They think, uh, let's just say that we should not collect an offering during the church service. Okay, they decide. That's their issue, all right? And they will not give up until they get what they want. That's divisive, all right? Sometimes, uh, I said this in my blog post today, let's just say this, that there are leaders who have the authority in a church, the responsibility, call it what you want to make decisions about something. We are going to build a new church amphitheater, all right, for the music program on this end of the building, all right? Some people disagree and they want to fight about it. Well, other people are given the responsibility to make that decision. They've made it. At this point, this is where some people refuse to give in. Mm-hmm. And that's that can be very divisive. Now, of course, some people think that what they're fighting for is the ultimate justice. And so they think it's an injustice what's happened to them. And they're going to fight till till they find some people who will fight for them. That's not healthy either. Um, if you're in a group and a group makes a decision, you know, there you go. Uh, you got to live with the decision of the group. That's what the group does. Um, and then even then, you know, sometimes we can't give it even in on that because sometimes people have to fight beyond the group and, and go for it. But uh, some people are divisive and some people aren't. That's what I think, right. too. Right. And I think there's an element of sort of pastoral care that can be used there when you've got somebody like that, you know, as much as possible to reach out to them and say, we've heard you, but this is the direction the group is going, you know, but extending appreciation to that individual, I think becomes really important. What I get concerned about is when there's a tendency to sideline those people and say, well, they're always raising, you know, they're always doing that or whatever, and just discount them completely. Then I think that that can be really dangerous. Well, we're going to turn a little bit and talk about excuses that are made to defend abusive leadership. So this is where I think things might get a little interesting. Um, We had a follower on Twitter who wrote um, asking if you could address the misapplication of David not touching the Lord's anointed and Shem and Japheth covering Noah. Um, and that these passages are often used to manipulate victims of clergy abuse into silence. So they want to people raise these passages um, to challenge people to be silent because leadership should be protected in some way. Okay, let's let's just d- dismiss Noah and the the cloak over Noah because that's just nothing other than a metaphor. I mean, that, this is. Uh, this was seen as uh, sexually provocative, shouldn't, you know, it's exposure at a level it shouldn't happen. So they covered him up. All right. Not touch the Lord's anointed. This is this is interesting. You know, you could you could take the passage in. In Paul's letter to Timothy that you shouldn't you shouldn't 
let's say, bring an accusation or an allegation against an elder or a bishop or a leader, unless you have two or three witnesses, you could say that is um, borrowing on don't touch the Lord's anointed. All right, let's let's just momentarily look at the text. I mean, we don't, I won't quote her or anything, but David had an opportunity. Saul is asleep. He could slay the guy. You know, he chooses not to. All right. Uh, but, you know, you cut off a little piece of his cloak just to hold it up at a distance and say, you know, you're lucky, buddy. Um, it's a little bit of a rub in the face, you know, that, you know, pushes his nose. I, I would say that this is a, a really important principle, is that someone who is given a calling by God and has been recognized by churches for that calling should der, should deserves the respect of that calling, right? So I, I think that there's a respect that should be entailed in being a leader in a church. For instance, the president of our seminary, Dr. Bill Scheel, I respect him for as a president. Lynn Coick, I respect as our provost and dean. Ava Ivy, I respect. I, I respect these people in their positions. Um, and I, if they make decisions that are a part of their responsibility, I respect that. This does not mean that we should create a culture in which I can't ever disagree with our president or our provost or anybody else. So I think there's a fundamental, I, I would say this, this comes into the church at the level of respect. Um, and I believe that I, I, this, this is a standard statement. I've said this for 40 years, maybe not that long, that um, when husbands who are complementarians are talking about their authority over their wife, they're in trouble. That's trouble. I heard a pastor say the other day to me, he says to me, um, a staff member and I disagree, and the staff member said to me, because you have authority, um, I'm going to respect you. And the pastor um, thought that that was a revelation of problems, uh, of, you know, that when we are doing things because someone is the authority, then we, we, have not, we are not in a proper relationship. So I think that when pastors claim authority, they have, they have a fractured, dysfunctional relationship. When someone, let's just say, says, and I've, I've, done, I've done this, you know, even at Northern uh, in eight, eight or nine years, is some decisions have been made that I haven't, I haven't always liked. And I go, well, that's the decision of our president or our dean or our provost, and that's the way it is. No, I'm going to live with that. Uh, um, and I could say, you know, I'm going to do this because you're the president or whatever. I can't remember this happening with Bill Shield, but okay, let's just say it does. Um, I think that, that there's, there's something wise about that at times. And other times when, when someone uses it, you say they're just playing a game of power. That's when I want to cut in and say, no, this is not right. You're not supposed to do this. All right, I will respect your position 
but you be respectful of your position and you make yourself worthy of that respect. One time I heard a, a man who was a complementarian say this to me. He said this to me. This was years ago. He said, I, I uh, have told my wife that, um, that if I ever have to assert that kind of language, we need to deal with the problem on another level. And I think that's exactly right. When you're using that language, it's a dysfunctional. It's a dysfunctional. So don't touch the Lord's anointed is almost never used by the person who wants to touch the Lord's anointed. It's used by someone who doesn't like what's being said. That's not the language. That's that is more abusive, power mongering language. It's an attempt to silence someone. That's good. Well, along those lines, and this is something I've seen in a lot of um, just threads the last few days about Ravi Zacharias, but um, when people respond to these kinds of situations saying, well, everyone sins, no church is perfect, um, those kinds of things, how do we push back on that um, to, to get people to consider what's different about this particular situation? How can we ask leaders to be introspective on a deeper level than just sort of brushing aside these major abuses and saying, well, everyone sins, we're all liable. I think there was um, someone came out and said that could have been me, um, which to me is, is deeply disturbing. Um, yes, we're all prone to sin, but I think can we make a distinguishment between being prone to sin and, and being abusive? Can we say those are different things um, and and not be so quick to let leaders off the hook who have been abusers? I'll, I, I will defer to the theologian, but I do have a couple of comments. I've been watching the Ravi Zacharias story unfold over the last couple of months. And I did see comments like the ones that you are describing, Laura. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, particularly on Twitter, I saw a few that, you know, he was a sinner, he fell into sin, we're all sinners, you know, cast the first stone, all of these comments. And um, it bothered me because I thought this isn't just he fell into sin, like, these were repetitive choices that he made over, I don't know how long, decades, perhaps, I'm not sure, I don't want to speak out of turn, but um, I agree with you that there is a difference between consistently choosing abusive patterns of behavior over um, sin, and it sort of dismisses the the choices that Robbie made and the damage that he did to the victims. And now I will turn it over to the theologian. To well, that that whole thing, I, I I agree with what Laura said there. I I, I think that. Uh, it, it's a, a profound diminishment, distressing dim, dis, diminishment of the victims when you start doing this sort of thing. But let, let me start with this, that there is something in our beings about thinking that a church leader of that magnitude should have 
a certain character and, and habits of behavior that would be consistent with it. No, the Bible calls this hypocrisy. You know, um, if I find out that he is a bad golfer, I don't really care if Ravi Zacharias can play golf or not. But if I find out, as we have found out, that he was abusing women, he was lying to people, he had multiple telephones, he would not use the, I mean, one thing after another is a pattern of deceit and cover up. This is really bad. Now, James says in James chapter three, you know, he makes a kind of a funny statement. It's easy to understand the big idea, but the exact words don't seem to fit what we're expecting. Many of you want to be teachers, but you should know that teachers are going to receive, not many of you should want to be teachers because teachers are going to receive a greater judgment. All right. I think the, the real point is, um, if you're going to be a teacher, you're going to have to have the kind of character that matches it. All right. Jesus was particularly vitriolic against the hypocrisy of the Pharisees who loved their status as teachers, but who did not live up to it and didn't live up to their own teachings. So I think that we, uh, we are all shocked to discover someone like Ravi Zacharias, who behind the scenes was living a profoundly duplicitous life. And it's unacceptable. Teachers and preachers and leaders like this are expected to be, if I can say it, better Christians. Right? We're not expecting them to be perfect. You know, we may discover that some pastor has a little bit of a drinking problem that needs to be looked at. Um, I don't think that this automatic, now if we find out they've been, you know, they're abusive and they're lying about money and everything else, it's a little different game. But if we discover that someone has a peccadillo or some sin, uh, we we should, as as people, be willing to offer grace and forgiveness and pray for healing and like to see this person transform. I've seen this a hundred times in my career with leaders who struggled with something and the church helped them get through it. And the church became better for it. But when uh, we find out the level of, of duplicity, let's say with Bill Hybels, with um, uh, C.J. Mahaney, um, and the power abuse in some of these churches, say with James McDonald, the duplicity of moral behavior of Ravi Zacharias, we all innately say that is unacceptable. Right there, I think that's the conscience of God speaking in us to say this is not what we accept in the Christian community. All right? They need to get help. All right? And, okay, I've said enough. I'm very disappointed in the story about Ravi Zacharias and that uh, I, we know um, we know some of the leaders who were fighting against it and they were courageous. They were risking their, their jobs to speak up and it was really difficult. But the, the report was so damning that nobody could back down from it. Yeah. This is more of a comment than a question, but it's someone asking about 
when you see pastors or elders in a church brushing off these kinds of occasions like Rabbi Zacharias um, and they reference King David and say, well, he sinned in pretty profound ways, um, but God still honored his leadership. Um, they're wondering about the message that that sends to the congregation, that they don't really take sin seriously. Um, and then whether uh, the question is whether or not that becomes a safe place. So that's, you know, when we look at like the character of King David, who was someone that God loved and that placed in a position of leadership, but also had a very profound failing. What do we do with that? Um, how do we how do we look on that example of leadership? You know, this is an interesting. I've never been asked this one, but I've thought about it. You know, as I read the passage, I go, oh, what about Solomon? Solomon is worse than David, you know. Uh, and his story gets told for all the sinfulness that it, that Solomon accrued. And David's story is told, too, and he's humiliated by it. But a king is a king. Um, and it's not simply, in that sense, what we would call a pastoral spiritual uh, director um, ministry. It's a, it's a government position. And uh, and I and I find, uh, you know, if if King David did what he did today, uh, he would lose his job. How about that? He would lose his job in a church. He would lose the job in the United States. Hmm. Yeah. And I've also heard referenced, you know, the difference between someone when they're confronted with their sin, sin, whether or not they repent. And with King David, you saw there was this level of of repentance and acknowledgement of the sin and then with other some of these other stories we've seen the reaction of covering up of of lying about it of striking out at the, the accuser um which seems to me again to be just a different response to that situation i think no, it's, I, a good, it's a good reminder no i was just gonna say it's a good reminder that God uses all of us and he used King David, obviously, and Solomon and re really wonderful things came out of Bill Hybels and Willow Creek and Ravi Zacharias and Arzim Ministries. But at the same time, there existed a, a very serious um, abuse within the church and it doesn't mean that you can, yes, there was a lot of good that came out of it, but it doesn't mean that you can dismiss the consequences of the abuse. Yeah. And that's where my concern is, is yes, we know that good things came out, that um, Bill Hybels led many thousands of people's, people to Christ, but it doesn't mean we can ignore the other side of what was going on. We can't dismiss the consequences. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's where I think that's where it goes. I mean, yeah, and it becomes at some point spiritually abusive. You know, it starts getting it starts getting dangerous when you start uh, diminishing diminishing the significance of a leader's sins to the point that uh, you start uh, diminishing the call to holiness and to obedience. And to discipleship, and then the whole thing it gets corrupted. So, well, now these are a series of questions, and I won't read them all individually. But this is sort of from the other perspective, the other side of the spectrum. When you have churches 
who abuse their leaders or their pastors or perhaps other members of the church. Um, and we've seen stories of this where sometimes there is a senior leader who is um, putting a lot of restrictions or causing a lot of pain for other leaders within the church. Sometimes it's a congregation that sort of teams up on their leader. Um, sometimes this will even extend into the life of a pastor's family where the family will be getting pushback from members of the community. Um, so let's talk a little bit about sort of the other side of the spectrum for pastors who experience this um, perhaps from their community. What does that look like? Um, you know, can, can a church culture itself be so toxic and so abusive that their leaders feel pretty trapped um, by that culture? Well, I've had a number of students and I have a number of friends who have experienced this from their churches. And this is one of the most important parts of our book for me is to recognize that church cultures are living agents of, with power and authority. And that if we, uh, and that they are formed not just by the Bible or some constitution in the church or statement of faith, and then the teachings and the narratives of leaders, but that the people themselves help form a culture. And sometimes you have tove pastors and leaders with raw or toxic people in the church. And sometimes it's a group and sometimes it's a family with money and power. And they seem so nice. They hired you and you thought this is going to be really good. And it took uh, six months for you to realize that they expect you to toe the mark. And, you know, I've seen situations where boards are kind of run by one person. And that one person um, wants to bring in the person that they want. And the rest of the board goes along with it. And then they realize that that board member doesn't like the person that he or she brought in. And then they're against them. But I've seen churches like this too. And they can be non-responsive to the gospel. And in my opinion, there's not a whole lot that can be done about this other than, number one, to be faithful as a Christian in your prayer, in your Bible reading, whatever, and in your teaching to teach the gospel, I would also urge them not to use the pulpit as a place of passive aggressive retaliation against people. But they also can find people in the church who are healthy, who can work with people and might be able to lead toward a healthier situation. But, um, I, I was talking to a pastor a couple of years ago. I mean, the church he was in was unbelievable. The people were so mean. And, uh, you know, mean church people are as mean as people can get because they're using the mask of Christianity for their meanness. And that's not good. So, um, I, and I, I uh, one of the sad parts of writing a book like this is that it doesn't recognize this side of the story. 
Um, and I, I appreciate whoever wrote this. Um, I, I appreciate they have something to say. This is a reality. Um, and I'm not sure there's a whole lot that can be done about it other than faithfulness, prayer, hope to find someone who can help and uh, look for another church. Uh, maybe uh, take some parting shots even and say, you know, you're not very healthy. Mm -hmm. You're not very healthy. And uh, I remember one time hearing a dean say to a faculty, there's a lot of sickness or unhealthiness in this faculty. And I remember thinking, you know, I bet that I bet that Dean, he's pretty shrewd, pretty wise. I think he probably was right. I won't tell you what school. <laughs> it's not normal. Laura, do you have anything to add about that? Just about sort of toxic church culture um, and the effects sometimes it has on leaders? No, I don't think so. This question really, well, I guess, okay, I guess I do have something to say. This question really flips around what my dad and I have been studying for the last couple of years. And like my dad, I really appreciate the question. And I hope that folks in this type of situation um, can heal. That must be incredibly difficult to know that the pastor is being abused by the congregation. And I do hope that, um, like I said, that they can find healing and I would encourage them to get out. And like my dad said, you know, before they go, maybe speak some truth into the culture. You know, I, you know, you can, you can imagine this. Let's just say you have a group of 50 people and um, you've got 30 people who are naively happy. They don't know what's going on, but they don't care in that sense. They think it's going great. They don't want anything to do. with. And you've got five people who are absolutely mesmerized by the leader. Then you've got two or three people, sometimes just led by one person, who just cannot handle the fact that somebody else is the leader and they want to be the leader. So they are keen and quick and on the lookout to find problems in the leader. Let's just say it's the pastor. Um, sometimes it can be just one or two people who are the whole problem. And purging the group of that one or two person could be the prayer request. And there's plenty of Psalms uh, that are like this. David, I was reading a couple last night, David complaining or somebody complaining about all the enemies. They want to kill me. They want to take me down to the pit. And it's horrible. And I'm sad about it. How about you, God, doing something about this? You know, um, but I, I do believe that um, there is, there are people like this who can't handle leaders, no matter who they are. And they are toxic in a church. Hmm. And the issue can be dealt with indirectly through the pulpit in a way that's responsible to the text without being passive aggressive. Sometimes you have to talk to the people directly. It's, it's almost always fruitless and maybe antagonistic in the end because it, it just provokes more problems. And um, it's really sad, but 
this is this is a part of how churches operate at times. You have to deal with people like this. We talked about divisiveness at the beginning of this episode. This sounds wholly divisive to me. Yeah, yeah, it is. Hmm. When I okay well, at, at my former institutions, and both of them, you know, when I was at Trinity, this is so long ago. It doesn't worry. It doesn't matter anymore. There were about four professors who thought they should be running the seminary. You know, when I got to North Park, there were people like this, too. I thought they're everywhere. You know, I just wanted to teach and to be left alone to do my reading and writing and speaking, you know. And and there are other people who want to run it. And they can be they can almost um, dominate conversations about these topics. And you think, could we talk about teaching? Could we talk about something that's more profitable and redemptive? And, you know, I would say my experience with pastors is almost every church has people like this. And when they when they dig in, let's call it a, and form a bitter root, it's nasty. The church can become dysfunctional and the pastor can be tove. I, I've got a couple of students who are tove pastors and I know. Their church has a lot of toxic people in the church, and it's tough on them because they're tov. Yeah, that's hard hard to navigate. All right, we have also a series of questions about non-disclosure agreements, and we saw this come out again with the Ravi Zacharias situation. Um, a non-disclosure agreement is, is something that, People are asked to sign not to talk about the situation they've experienced. Um, it's to protect usually the institution um, and people sign it for various reasons. Sometimes, you know, they're concerned about their job prospects on the other end. Um, and so signing a non-disclosure agreement gives them some safety there or sometimes there are financial settlements included. Um, but let's talk about that a little bit. Why do people sign these things? Um, what other options might a person have? And sometimes sort of related to this is the idea of church membership covenants that people are asked to sign, even just for the members of a church um, saying they won't do various things. So let's talk about why do churches have non-disclosure agreements? Are they a good idea? Are they a bad idea? Um, How should people respond to those when those are presented? This was something entirely new to me. I don't live in the business world. I don't live in the church world. And to hear that churches were using non-disclosure agreements was shocking to me personally. And I think my dad would say the same thing as well. We were hearing stories come out during the research of our book out of Willow Creek And what was particularly troubling to us is that human resources was surprising staff with the document and they were signing it under duress and and they were holding over them a severance agreement that we will give you this money if you sign this document. And so, of course, they were signing them. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to judge anybody for signing one, especially under duress. I probably would have done the same thing because they're scared or whatever. Um, 
And that's why we really went after this topic in our book, because we found too many examples of churches using them, again, as a weapon to silence people. And they weren't able to speak truth about the situation that was really the problem in the church. Oh, yeah. Okay. I got too many things to say about this. All right. I, we know someone who was offered seven figures not to talk. That's a lot of money from a church. Okay. This morning in my email, I got a master's thesis from someone who wrote a thesis on non-disclosure agreements in churches. His name is Ben Nicholson. And I, you know, it was, this was five, six o'clock in the morning and I'm, I'm just mesmerized by this. And Chris says, what are you reading? <laughs> um, but um, I would say, I, I do think, all right, let's just say this, a non-disclosure agreement that pertains to the fact that we paid you to develop this discipleship program and you can't take that to another church and use it when we paid you for that. Okay, that's that's reasonable. I you know this is the kingdom of God. I think we 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 need to be bigger than that. But okay, that's reasonable. But when it has to do with what you saw, what you heard, it has become moral bribery. Yeah. And it is bribing people from telling the truth. If it's criminal, it doesn't matter what you sign, you can still present it. So a non-disclosure agreement uh, in which you saw sexual abuse or experienced sexual abuse, uh, I don't think is protected. Just look up Google on non-disclosure agreements. There's all kinds of statements from the law about this. So, uh, but I think that when churches are in non-disclosure agreements with employees under duress with handsome severance packages, that church has formed a culture that is unacceptable because it's not a truth-telling culture. It's not Tove. That's toxic. They are protecting something. Non-disclosure agreements always protect the church and always re-victimize the victims. That's what they do. Now, I'm not talking about one where you developed a discipleship program because I I know someone who did this and they told they told her when she left that she couldn't take her program with her. And there was a lot of propriety information in this. Okay. I, I can I can hear something about that. That's a little bit of a business type thing. But when it has to do with something you saw or heard, you saw money being spent. You saw a pastor with another woman, et cetera, et cetera. At that point, no, that that should not be happening. All right, that's that's protection of reputation. And uh, sometimes, you know, I've heard of, of non-disclosure agreements, which are sort of like, uh, if I can use a sexist comments, gentlemanly agreements. Okay, is that okay to use? Can, can I be? Are you asking me? Yes, Laura Terrell, what do I say here? <laughs> I just an honorary, honor, okay. honoring okay. agreement. Sure. An honorable agreement. That, yes. You know, we've had such a disagreement here, and our relationship is so bad. Let's just agree with one another not to badmouth one another. 
I, I can live with that. That that seems fine. Uh, the church is going to benefit from it and the person is going to benefit from it. But by and large, 95% of the time, non-disclosure agreements are brand new in the church. These did not happen until the last 15 years. And they are almost entirely designed to protect the power and reputation of a pastor and silence the truth. And they're an example of institution creep that we talk about in the book too. Bringing the business world into the church, was that really God's design? Yeah. And yeah. I would go so far as to say, after all that I that we have researched over the last couple of years on the stories that we've heard, I'm thinking of Lorianne Thompson with the Robbie Zacharias non-disclosure agreement that his widow will not let her out of. Um, our advice, I, and it's easy for me to say because I haven't been forced to sign one. I haven't been under duress. But after all that we've read and researched, I would advise people not to sign them, especially if yeah. they're being used to silence the truth. It seems to me there's a power differential there because you've got an institution going to an individual yeah. and yeah. and they're especially when they're holding money out, you know, that that money's on the line for you to sign this thing. It it just doesn't seem like an even playing field at all. Correct. And I really admire there was some folks at Dave at the Dave Ramsey what is his organization called? Um whatever, Ramsey whatever. And they refused to sign one. They lost almost all of their severance package in the process. But those folks are really brave and very courageous, very tove for refusing to accept money for silence. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think we may need to come back another time because there, there are two main topics that we haven't even touched yet, which... One is, what on earth do you do when you begin to understand that your church is really bound up in an abusive culture? Um, what, is, what is the responsibility of the individual to their fellow church members, to their congregation, to their network and denomination? How do they navigate all of that? And that we saw lots of questions about that. And it tends to be people who are leaving a situation what are their obligations um, to help people understand, especially because if you are in church leadership, you have a front row seat to seeing a lot of this stuff up close and you have information that other people in the congregation do not have. Do you have an obligation to tell um, the wider congregation? And if your congregation is part of a network or denomination, do you have an obligation to try to tell people higher above you what's happening so that it can be addressed. Um, so that's one whole area of conversation. And then the other thing, and this came out all over the place this weekend, is this connected to complementarian theology? So I think to give, we, we want to give those things maybe some priority of their own time. So I think we'll come back to those two areas of consideration. And some of you are probably listening right now saying, those are my primary questions. Um, so we'll we'll come back to those because I think they're important. But I, I think this has been an important conversation and I appreciate you both taking the time to, to have it. 
And I'll close this by just saying, we look forward to being with you next time as we continue with this very important conversation about how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. And we want the kingdom to be tove. So we'll keep hammering away at this. So thank you all for your time and for um, sticking with us on an extended conversation. 